Hey there, this is Justin. You're listening to Island Boy on Anchor FM. This is it. We're doing it. We're doing a reading from my public journal called Island Boy, and I thought it'd be fun to have a recording of it. I know some people would prefer to just sit and read it on their own, but some people would rather have it on in the background, maybe while they're doing some chores around the house and doing what have you. Perhaps they're watering the garden or watering the lawn or letting the baby out for a walk. I don't know what adults do generally, but what I've been doing for the past several weeks is putting putting pen to page and filling my public journal with different essays that have been edited by uh, a lot of terrific terrific writers pr- from Prince Edward Island. They've been a great help with me organizing my thoughts and my feelings into into one place to share all the stories that I have to tell. And I'd like to give a big, big thank you to Eddie Quinn of the Fiddler's Sons. I called him up several weeks ago and said, Eddie, I would love for listeners and people who hear the stories I have to tell, I would love for them to feel the same way they feel when they hear your music. And he said, well, might want to raise the bar a bit higher. Eddie's always so humble with his work. He's got such a terrific, distinct island sound, such rich East Coast traditions found in his work with the Fiddler's Sons. And I'm so, so thrilled that I get to share some of his music on this broadcast. This entry is about my father, Blair Shaw. I grew up in New Perth, Prince Edward Island, which is a little area just outside of Cardigan. Prince Edward Island, which is a little area in Kings County, which is in itself a little county in a little province. It just keeps getting smaller and smaller. But the more you hone in on these small towns, these small regions, you realize they're filled with a great big heart. And for me, the person with the biggest heart would have to be my dad. And that's a heart that reaches not just his family that he supports, but also the family of horses he raises in his barn. And this is an ever-changing team of horses. Uh, he'll keep a, keep a team for a few weeks or a few months at a time. But he's recently taken to, uh, uh, to horse breeding. So the horses will actually make more horses. A pretty, pretty interesting Ponzi scheme there, Dad. I think, uh, I think there's money in it. So good. God bless. So this is a story I wrote about him and his early ventures in, in horse breeding uh, based on a recent trip home. This is called The Secret Language. I stopped by the windy hill To see where I was raised In a house above a field Where my grandfather's cattle grazed And Dad rose from his chair to put kettle on the stove now that old man has seen a lot of snow every time i return home to visit my parents in new perth prince edward island i can't help but marvel at how much feels the same the feeling of trust and comfort from the security of home is so infectious i even catch myself slipping into the same old habits 
Growing up, it was my self-appointed responsibility to check the missed messages on the phone. It was a classic wall mount with a, a cord about as long as our driveway. And then I would report back to the family on any missed calls. And despite having moved out over a decade ago, upon entering my family home, I still checked the phone. Any calls, mom would ask, indulging the routine. Probably someone calling about a horse, I'd reply. It's important to make the distinction between things being the same and feeling the same. Truth be told, dad has performed so many renovations on the house in the past number of years, the only thing that's the same is the name on our mailbox. And even the mailbox has experienced the occasional facelift from year to year. Every time I pass by that mailbox and make the quarter kilometer venture down the road to my parents' house, I remember that feeling of trust and comfort is maintained by a language of love that extends beyond words. I became more acutely aware of this language the last time I visited home. Dad picked me up at the airport and was driving me from Charlottetown back to New Perth. It's about a solid hour of driving, and the time goes by quicker as we catch up on the ride. My first question for him is always, how many you got now? Our relationship as father and son has reached such a rapport of common code that I don't even need to mention what I'm referring to. After a brief, contemplative beat of him quietly counting under his breath, he replies, got six up in the barn now. Might be eight by the end of the week if I make it to Nova Scotia. My father, the horse dealer. It's a fundamental truth of the Shaw household that dad always has horses in the barn. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how many. The household was built upon a collection of assumed truths, such as, one, the length of my morning walk down the lane to the school bus would never get any shorter no matter how much I complained about it. Two, a hush would always fall over the kitchen as mom turned up the radio to listen to the day's funeral announcements. Three. If dad ever needed to be found, odds are he was probably in the barn with his horses. As we pulled through the Tim Hortons drive through dad added, Oh, did I say six? Uh, I meant seven. The man was so deep in the game he couldn't even keep the count off the top of his head. Oh, we got one new just recently. When? I asked. Well, this morning. Now, how on earth would he have time to buy another horse and swing into Charlottetown to pick me up at the airport before noon? When we got home, he took me to the barn, and I found my answer. Still struggling to stand was a newborn filly latching at her mother for the first time. With a quiet smile, Dad watched the filly and the mare the same way he undoubtedly watched them the whole night through. Then, with a soft sigh, he said, we call her lady. When you spend your entire childhood with some of the most powerful animals on earth living in your barn and the largest man you've ever known raising them, there was little need to worry about the security of your home. It became a detail of life that I took for granted for many years. And I would feel ignorant at times when I'd tell friends about the kind of childhood I'd had. I'd see the reaction of wonder in their eyes as the word horses left my mouth. Coming home and seeing my dad watch over Lady and her mother, it became clearer why I took them for granted. Because I was safe. 
I felt little push nor need to question the invisible comfort that surrounded my home in the form of my father and his horses. The horses protected us, and he protected them. I've asked my dad many, many times why he raises horses, and the closest thing to a straight answer I can get from him is because his dad did. Were his dad alive, I'd wager he might say the same thing. The choice to march to the barn every day to see the horses is born out of a language of love, an agreed-upon routine of unspoken compassion. Part of the choice is knowing that he wants to see them. The other part is knowing that they want to see him too. As I unpacked my bags after I checked the phone, mom told me that dad had taken a keen interest in horse breeding. It seemed like the logical lateral move for a horse dealer. Why go out and buy more horses when he can just have them make more themselves? After no less than 300 generations of barn cats that have come and gone, I'm surprised it took dad that long to even consider the idea of breeding. Mom revealed it was actually an incredibly difficult decision to pursue this venture. The mare that had given birth that morning was the second from the season. The first had died giving birth, and the new filly went with it. The choice to continue in the practice was not one that was made lightly. The death of a family member weighs heavy on the heart and that of a pet heavy on the soul. But for the like of a 15 hand tall mother and her babe, it is heavier than heaven. I couldn't help but think about the grief that must have weighed on my dad's shoulders. I also couldn't help but think for all that we talked about that day on the drive home. He never mentioned it once. I can only consider whether it was because he didn't want me to feel the weight of his grief or he didn't want to relive the experience. The vet apparently didn't charge a cent to remove the bodies, but it cost dad a broken heart. Grief is the price of love. With the success of Lady and her mother surviving the night, Dad knew having more horses would require more space. Much like the house or the mailbox, the barn was often renovated or reconstructed to accommodate the ever-increasing number of horses. After unpacking, I went outside and watched his dad hammer down the poles to a new fence. The gears of his mind were well at work. Dad's latest expansion would lead Lady and her mother into a fresh patch of grass near Mom's garden. The garden featured Mom's usual team of tomatoes and beans. And between the drills, she had expertly placed a large plastic owl. That's for keeping out the skunks and raccoons, winked Mom, perhaps thinking the creatures of the night to mistake the wise owl for a flightless bird. As Lady and her mother grazed in the new expansion of the field, I noticed the fence was only marked off with rope, not wire. I asked why, and Dad replied, No harm, just wanted the pair to have some fresh grass. 
what luxury they were afforded. I often tease dad that he loves the horses more than his own son. Always a Clydesdale, never a Clyde, I'd joke. He never laughs at that. Not because it's untrue, but because he knows that I know good and well that he raises percherons. That ought to do, said dad, as he hammered in the last of his poles. Then, as if on cue, the mother horse ducked under the rope of the fence and into the yard. I could swear I almost heard her giggle as the nylon of the rope tickled her back as she made her grand escape. Somewhat perplexed by her mother's actions, Lady, only a few hours old, was still only hardwired to mimic her mother. If mother eats, Lady eats. If mother drinks, Lady drinks. If mother springs like Steve McQueen, Lady was sure to be right behind her. Lady and her mother made their way to mom's garden and helped themselves to the tomato lunch special. Apparently horses aren't afraid of land owls. Mom ran to the barn for the grain bucket in an effort to lure the horses back to the barn. At this time, I was faced with yet another fundamental truth of the Shaw household. Dad doesn't run. He is a man of large stature, like a brick house, solid and sure. He moves with the sustained pace of a man who only moves when he absolutely has to. Not to be mistaken for lazy, he simply knew if he had to move, it had to be for a good reason. The horses knew that too. At this point, I was beginning to feel pretty useless. My Bachelor of Arts probably wasn't going to be much help in this situation. I looked out at the length of the driveway and realized what might have been a long walk for a whiny six-year-old would only make for a brief sprint to the highway for the pair of horses. As dad made his way to the barn, I tried to block off the front of the driveway, perhaps thinking that my frame would somehow be enough to stop them from leaving the property. The, the land owl might have been more equipped than I was. The horses, however, took quick notice of dad's careful steps towards them. Not needing any warning, they obediently walked back to the barn, very aware of their transgression. Sensing the mother horse may have been somewhat agitated, dad pulled her back outside to calm her nerves. I stood from afar, witnessing a meeting of the minds from one parent to another in the blazing sun of July. He stroked her mane carefully as she grew less and less restless. Now what you go and do that for? He asked her quietly and non-rhetorically. He asked as if she might have an answer. And for all I know, she did. But it wasn't for me to know. It was their language. It takes a strong hand and a gentle heart to raise horses. Every time I come home, I discover how lucky our family is to have been raised the same way. The feeling of comfort and security of home has been maintained by a private language of love supported by gesture and compassion. Whether it's spoken or not, we always know it when we feel it. He's earned his peace of mind, being honest, fair and kind. It may take a life to learn half what he knows. Yeah, my old man has seen a lot of snow. Yeah, 
Once again, that was The Secret Language that was published on July the 12th. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this uh, this journal entry. Big thank you to Eddie Quinn of the Fiddler Sons for sharing his music with this, uh, with this broadcast. It's really appreciated. I really wanted uh, that distinct Eddie Quinn Fiddler Sons sound to come off the page with these entries. So he was kind enough to share his music uh, for the sake of this program. So thank you so much, Eddie. Thank you to the Fiddler Sons. And thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more on Island Boy. back we got more more island boy yay <laughs> uh, i've been collecting my thoughts and my writing and my musings into a public journal uh, that i put on the internet on a, on a public journal called island boy it's not a very good diary i'm letting and encouraging the world to read it and i'm doing this in an effort to con to connect and engage with the communities i'm no longer a part of as a result of the pandemic that's taken place this past year it's made for a very isolating period for a lot of people self isolating distancing are words that have been used quite a lot in 2020 and it does take a toll on an artist's soul and it's very difficult especially when the work of a performer or a writer is so dependent on connectivity and engaging so what do you do when you can't connect like you used to well you adapt and for me that meant taking a trip to 2009 and starting a blog then a trip to 2005 and starting a podcast so we're time traveling hooray we're doing it together I'm really excited by this project because so far I've already experienced an outpour of support for this wonderful project. I shared a, a little story about my father and his horses. I received a message from someone who grew up near where my grandfather grew up when he was a kid. This, uh, this lovely lady named Pam, she messaged me after I released one of my entries. She said, this brought back so many memories of our childhood where we lived on a farm between your great-grandfather Danny and your grandfather Donald. Wonderful neighbors. Had many rides to school on cold days by Danny in the sleigh under the buffalo. Wow. I did not know that about my grandfather or my great-grandfather. I didn't even know if I knew my great-grandfather's first name. That's remarkable. These little details that slide into place suddenly paint such a larger picture of who I am and where I came from. So this, these kind of gifts mean so much. But my partner, Diana, she put it really nicely. She said after I received this message and I shared it with her, she said, sometimes when you share a piece of yourself with the universe, you get a piece back. 
And that's precisely why I've continued writing on this Island Boy public journal. And now I'm putting it all on the internet where you can read it and now you can listen to it. And I'd love to give a great big thank you to all the wonderful writers that have served as editors for these individual pieces. Benton Hartley, he's been great. He's helped out so many times. He's put up with a lot of my, lot of my shenanigans over the past decade. And also a great writer in Prince Edward Island, David Stewart. He's a terrific person, a great writer, and just a generous, generous supporter all around. So we're very lucky to have their support. And also Eddie Quinn, musician Eddie Quinn of Fiddler Sons, terrific island band, East Coast music, one of the most authentically Prince Edward Island bands you could, you could think of. It is such a treat to have their music on this broadcast because it lifts so much of what I'm trying to say off the page in ways that only music can. So thank you so much, Fiddler Sons. Thank you so much, Eddie Quinn. This next piece is a, a short story about my mother in the holiday season on Prince Edward Island. It's a, a testament to my mother's spirit and her, her willingness to, to fight for what is right and what she believes in. It's quite the story. I'm really excited to share it with you. This is The Great Exchange. There are many words I'd use to describe my mom, such as provider, caregiver, joker. However, the word fighter is not one that immediately springs to mind. That is not to say she exhibits a lack of strength. She simply knows that some things are just not worth the fuss. She will sit on a powder keg of frustration or cling to her grenade of anxiety before letting it blow up and, God forbid, ruin someone else's day. Because of my mom, I learned a person's strength is not measured by the fights they win, but by the things they choose to fight for. Every so often, I am treated to a brief glimpse of moments where she chooses to pull the pin and let the fury fly. These moments tend to occur around Christmas time. Grocery shopping with mom around the holidays is a liberating experience. Most times, she will make the trip to Sobeys with the weekly flyer in one hand and the shopping cart in the other. Regardless of whatever might be on the grocery list, she hunts for the flyer goods first. Sometimes she wants items that have been marked on sale or buy one, get one, but her eye goes to the coveted prize, the air miles points. If there is any possible chance of increasing her Air Miles collection, mom will always take it, even if it means buying things that we don't necessarily need. There are items that have been purchased for the sheer sake of five extra Air Miles and have made their way into the pantry and have still yet to see the light of day. That pantry has become a museum of sorts, exhibiting Air Miles promises of days past. There's one shelf dedicated to the splendor of Campbell's tomato soup, another to an artillery of craft dinner and rice aroni, and in the dark corner lies a solitary bottle of Heinz Easy Squirts colored ketchup. Shopping during the holidays is the closest thing to a vacation mom will ever take. 
Every December, she cashes in her air miles points in exchange for grocery money. The day of the great exchange is not one selected idly. It is premeditated and precise. The date is circled on the calendar months in advance in anticipation of when she will be on the precipice of the highest amount of points she hopes to accumulate for the year. And when the day of the great exchange comes, she rolls that shopping cart through the produce section as if her last name was Rockefeller. The grocery list in December is perhaps her greatest, if not her solitary, indulgence. She would use her air miles to invest in a quantity of groceries that could feed an army battalion. With the holiday season comes family and friends coming for visits, and she didn't want her pantry to be caught unawares. Family would arrive on December 25th, and it seems each year, if the quantity of grandchildren didn't increase, their appetite did. Friends would arrive throughout the month and drop off a generous parcel and mom would always have a pot of gold, chocolate, or a tin of Quality Street at short disposal. While shopping with mom on a recent trip home, a collection of holiday-decorated tea towels caught her eye. Frosty the Snowman was adorned on one, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer upon another. My guess was that Jesus and Santa must be on the collector's edition. Mom selected these ugly kitchen miscreants from off the shelf and tossed them in the cart next to the butterball. Are you sure about buying those for yourself, I asked. What if Santa already got you those for your stocking? Those aren't for me, she replied. Those are for Cousin Shirley. Cousin Shirley. The closest thing to a sworn rival my mother has is embodied in the 65-year-old 80-pound frame of Cousin Shirley. They were both bound by familial ties neither one of them chose nor wanted. With these ties comes the obligation of a holiday gift exchange. Despite their true feelings for one another, Mom and Cousin Shirley knew they had to offer some kind of gift to each other each year. Each year, Cousin Shirley would deliver a Christmas gift for my mom. Not giving a gift would just be rude. However, Cousin Shirley would arrive at a time when she knew my mom was at work. So the gift would lay adorned in a plastic Sobeys bag on the doorknob to the house. Cousin Shirley would leave before receiving her gift in exchange. The gears of conspiracy were well at work in mom's mind. Mom knew in her heart of hearts that Cousin Shirley was well aware of her work schedule and knew if she wanted to drop off the gift for a proper exchange, she would. Therefore, in Mom's mind, Cousin Shirley would continually dodge her holiday receipt in an effort to imply that Mom was an unthoughtful person. For seven years, this routine continued, and for seven years after seeing the dangling Sobeys bag on the doorknob, Mom would be so spurned by the gesture she wouldn't even make the five-kilometer drive to her house to deliver the gift. The damage was done. As Mom handed the Frosty and Rudolph tea towels to the cashier, she muttered to herself in a warlike trance, Not this year. That afternoon, as we were unpacking groceries, Mom examined her receipt. 
Even though she paid for the groceries with a year's worth of air miles, she still accumulated air miles in the process. If the air miles conglomerate is a multi-layered Ponzi scheme, then mom is Ponzi herself. As mom scanned through her receipt, her eyes widened in horror. She had been short-changed her air miles points. The tea towels were to be worth double their original sticker value of points, but it was not reflected on the receipt. Mom immediately took out her air miles card, hunted for the fine print on the back to search for the number of the head office. Nobody was going to stand in the way of mom and her well-earned air miles on the day of the great exchange, no less, especially for the matter of 12 points. Mom paced around the house with the phone in her hand as she waited on hold. This act was possible because the length of the phone cord was roughly the same length as our driveway. The groceries were long since put away, and the receipt was in shreds of anger in her hands as she paced to the tune of White Christmas that was occasionally interrupted by robotic interjections of, Please stay on the line. Your call is very important to us. You are currently 17th in line. Thank you. It didn't matter how long she'd have to wait because she was fighting it didn't matter how long she'd have to wait because she wasn't just fighting for what she was owed. She was fighting for her family. She was fighting for Christmas. She was fighting for justice. It was Chinatown. In what was her second or perhaps third hour of being on hold, mom pulled the length of the phone cord to its utmost extremes as she attempted to fill the cat's dish on the doorstep near the back door. As she opened the door, her heart fell to the pit of her stomach. A Sobeys bag was on the doorknob. Her impulse at that moment was to scream from sheer shock, but worried that that would be the moment that the air miles attendant would pick up the phone. Mom stifled her feelings of abject horror and began searching for answers. How? How on earth could Cousin Shirley have pulled off such a heist from under her nose? Mom ran to the front door to see if she could spot Cousin Shirley's burgundy Buick making its way down the driveway. What she saw instead was the Buick parked at the end of the quarter-kilometer driveway and making her way, walking through the snow to the parked Buick, was none other than Cousin Shirley. The gears of conspiracy spun faster than usual. Cousin Shirley had clearly parked at the end of the driveway so she could walk to the house undetected, drop off the gift, and quietly exit without making a sound. It was a sleeper cell mission of holiday proportions. As Bing Crosby crooned in Mom's ear, she dropped the receipt to the ground and repeated her war mantra, Not this year. The retaliation had begun. Still tethered to the wall and now ninth on hold, mom ran to the closet and pulled out a laundry basket filled over the brim with seven years worth of backlog Christmas presents. Seven years worth of gifts bundled together with love and passive aggression, topped off with a set of tea towels hastily thrown in and a Sobeys bag. Phone in one hand, gift basket in the other, mom ran out to the doorstep and bellowed, not wait or come back, 
but a menacing, I see you, midway down the driveway. Cousin Shirley froze in her tracks. She slowly turned around and saw Mom waving her down. Sorry, yelled Cousin Shirley as she sheepishly made her way back up the driveway. Huh, I didn't know you were home. I booked the week off work, replied Mom with a sobering silence as she glanced to the family car, very obviously parked next to the house. Mom was prepared to lay into seven years worth of pent-up frustration, seven years of retribution, seven years of her character drawn into question. And just as Mom was about to billow from the pits of her soul, she was met with a cheery voice on the other end of the receiver. Air Miles Canada, how may I help you? Mom gasped, wide-eyed. She tossed the basket to Cousin Shirley's feet and barked, Merry Christmas, and slammed the door in her face. Rudolph and Frosty slid out of the Sobeys bag and onto the snow, looking dumbfounded, but nowhere near as dumbfounded as Cousin Shirley. Mom settled her business on the phone in a matter of minutes. In that brief moment, knowing it was her turn, she literally dropped everything to address the situation. It was clear how much it meant to mom that she got her 12 points. Those were 12 air mile points that would begin her next year's journey. Typically, when someone collects air miles, it's to save for a trip on an airplane. For mom, it was, and always will be, about feeding her family. Every single choice she makes is for her family, including knowing what battles to fight. Earning her 12 points, conquering an old foe, succeeding at the great exchange, mom treated herself to a much-deserved glass of wine. She figured no harm in opening her gift from Cousin Shirley. As she sat on the couch, holding her gift, she realized the only thing worse than not repaying a gift would be re-gifting a gift to the person that gave it to you. She sat on the couch, sipped her wine, and wiped her lips with her new Frosty and Rudolph tea towels. And that was The Great Exchange. Thank you for listening to another entry on the Island Boy Public Journal. This piece was edited by Benton Hartley. Thank you so much for listening. Eddie Quinn is going to share some more music with us, folks. Thank you so much. Tune in next time for another exciting or possibly maybe a little bit sad story from Island Boy. Thank you so much. She's what you see, here's what you get A more kind or gentle soul in the world you've never met She taught us to play, and taught us to share And raised us up on whole food and a breath of fresh salt air 
when times were tight, she got along. Yeah, that's my mom. Yeah, that's my mom. That's my mom. The domestic queen. Although our house was a little run down, and it was never spotless clean. But our front door, was open to all Somehow the love in her heart left to shine on every wall She's easy to please Faithful and strong Yeah, that's my mom We're back Welcome. Welcome to Island Boy. Thanks for tuning in to hear another public journal entry. Big thank you to Eddie Quinn and Fiddler's Sons for sharing their music with this program, helping to lift the words off the page and resonate with the listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Eddie Quinn. Thank you, Fiddler's Sons. This next piece is actually about Eddie Quinn and his music. Uh, him and John Webster are very close friends of uh, my family in Kings County, Prince Edward Island. This is a little story involving uh, their work and my sister's wedding. This is The Moment of Surrender. Music can make you aware of feelings you didn't know you had. All it took was an asthma attack at my sister's wedding to prove it to me. In the fall of 2008, my sister Nicole was about to marry her fiance, Eric. Theirs couldn't be more of a Kings County love story unless they'd met at Radical Jack's. Ever prepared, Nicole had 99% of her preparations for the occasion all set. All she needed was to finalize one more detail to polish an already spotless itinerary. She needed music. She and Eric loved the Judds, specifically the track Young Love. Nicole played the song for me and I met it with a respectful indifference. At 17, I had little interest in country or folk music at that age, I was more interested in the uncontained nonsense of the rheostatics, the defiance of the Rolling Stones, and the rebellion of Steven Tyler. It didn't seem like country music was a sound meant for my ears. Nevertheless, I respected my sister's taste and didn't judge if she wanted twang to factor into her special day. Wouldn't it be great if we could have Eddie Quinn sing it live, she asked me. Again, the suggestion was met with a respectful indifference. I have many memories from my childhood of sitting in the back of my parents' car on a hot July evening as Dad drove us home, and Eddie Quinn, the voice of Fiddler's Sons, sang a sweet summer lullaby. Anytime the Sons released a new recording, it stayed in the car until their next release. The music itself is rich in East Coast tradition, and the warmth of the voice, melody, and lyrics takes the listener on an emotional journey that is deeply personal, yet somehow universal. Although I realize this now, at the time, I simply shrugged and said, well, sure. 
So we hopped in the car and paid a visit to John Webster, the guitarist for Fiddler's Sons and a relative to the Shaw family. The plan was, if we could convince John, John could convince Eddie, and the rest would be history. The three of us sat in John's living room as Nicole played a cassette tape of Young Love for John so he could determine whether or not it was possible to learn it in time for the wedding. As the song finished, John picked up his guitar and strummed what, after only a few attempts, quickly resembled the melody to Young Love. Nicole asked the question every patron should ask an artist when requesting a service. What should I pay you? John smiled and said, no need. It was his gift to the newlyweds. On the day of the wedding, I was thinking of all the work Nicole had put into making the event as special a day as it could be. I couldn't help but think of the stress that must have weighed upon her and that wouldn't be relieved until the moment the day was officially done and she could turn to Eric and say, there, we're married. She made her way down the aisle, walking with a grace a little brother doesn't normally observe in his sister on a day-to-day -day basis. As she passed my pew and caught my eye, she vanquished any worry I'd had about stress with a quick wink of shared sibling secrecy. The vows were exchanged, and the congregation glowed as the pair shared their love under the roof of St. Andrew's Presbyterian. And that's when it happened. Reverend Stephen Thompson, just before leading the newlyweds to sign their marriage license, announced, and now, as is the pride from the bride to the groom, please welcome Eddie Quinn and John Webster as they praise the newlyweds with the gift of song. No words were exchanged between bride and groom. Eric's eyes widened with disbelief. Nicole grinned from ear to ear as if to say, yes, this is really happening. As if by magic, Eddie and John appeared before a microphone. John strummed and Eddie crooned. She was sitting cross-legged on the hood of a Ford. As the music played, I was immediately overtaken by a feeling of total joy for my sister as I watched her dreams come true. I didn't know I was capable of feeling the level of joy I felt in that moment. The sound filled the church with a humble yet holy reverence, a sound that somehow spoke directly to the heart to tell you that love is real, worth fighting for, and standing right before your very eyes. As this message reached my soul, it somehow reached my throat. I couldn't breathe. There's never really a good time for an asthma attack, but this moment surely ranks high on the list of the worst. My asthma is triggered by moments of extreme stress or anxiety. So as far as defense mechanisms go, I feel I may have been sent back to the end of the evolutionary scale. It's as if there's a tiny operative sitting at the control panel of my brain who goes, what's that? He's stressed out. Oh, better kill him than hits a red button that closes my airway and causes a simultaneous asthma and panic attack. As if somehow synced to Eddie's voice and John's guitar, my eyes began pouring like a faucet. My nose followed suit. I was sitting in a pew, drowning in my own head fluids as this beautiful moment unfolded before the entire congregation. 
Guests took their eyes off the rural Renaissance tableau at the altar to find the source of a gasping and gurgling coming from the center pew. I tried to stifle my gasps for air by wiping the ripe combination of tears and snot from my face with the sleeve of my rented suit. And any time I caught someone's inquisitive glance, I managed to croak, it's so beautiful. Eddie and John played on as I endeavored to quell an asthma attack, which was in danger of upstaging the ceremony. As I collected my breath as best I could, I couldn't help but remember how I cared so little about the song Nicole played for me just days before the wedding. Somehow hearing it in person in relation to something so important happening right in front of me made me feel the music was so personal. As if it was something I was meant to hear. As happy as I was for my sister, I felt deflated after the ceremony, possibly due to my asthmatic outburst. On top of that, young love had moved me to weep like a child. Country music had done that. I felt like a shadow of my former self. What would Steven Tyler think of me now? I rode home with dad after the ceremony and apologized for crying. After a beat, he quietly replied, never apologize for having the courage to cry. Music can only be truly personal if it's listened with vulnerability. And that vulnerability comes from a willingness to surrender to how you feel. In those moments, such as my sister's wedding, the moment may introduce you to feelings you didn't know were there. I think the magic behind the music of the Fiddler's Sons is that they give the listener permission to surrender to a feeling that may be connected to a person, a place, or perhaps a memory one keeps close to their heart. For folks in Kings County, Prince Edward Island, the willingness to surrender to these feelings comes from the safety of knowing that they are not alone in the experience. When they listen, they are invited to share in a feeling that is personal yet universal, humble yet holy. When they feel it in their heart, whatever that feeling may be, they know in that moment that it was something they were meant to feel. Through the apple trees and down past creeds and by Captain Charlie's store, watch out for the kids fishing off the bridge and the boats on Sturgeon Morn. On the Pembroke Road, there's a bundle wall just on this side of the park. The siding's blue, she said, I'll watch for you, try to get there before dark. Thank you to my editor, Dave Stewart, for helping and contributing and really finding the, the heart of what this piece is about. Music can be an often hard thing to actually explain how and why it makes you feel the way you feel. So it was really important to have that extra set of eyes to help support this piece. Also, I wanted to acknowledge a reference I made in this piece that he did not understand, but I was ready to fight tooth and nail to keep. He did not understand the Radical Jack's reference where I said, in fall of 2008, my sister Nicole was about to marry her fiance, Eric. Theirs couldn't be a more of a Kings County love story unless they met at Radical Jack's. He said, no one's going to get that. And I said, people who listen to the Fiddler Sons will remember what Radical Jack's is. Uh, so Radical Jack's, here's the reference if you don't know what it is. Radical Jack's was a popular Pools Corner mini golf course, ice cream parlor, and go-kart track. 
I don't know what possessed the owners to combine these three things into a single business, but it made for a colorful visit. They went out of business the summer after I flipped a go-kart on the racetrack and had to go to the hospital. And yes, I took an asthma attack on the way to the hospital. And I feel partly responsible for their closure. So thank you, Dave, for indulging that, that reference that a small percentage of the readers might have actually understood. Thank you for everyone who listened to this, uh, this broadcast. Once again, once again, my name is Justin Shaw. This has been Island Boy on Anchor FM. Thank you to Eddie Quinn and Fiddler Sons for sharing their music with this broadcast. Take care. Got a call from Phoenix, Arizona From a woman who had one foot in the grave She said, I've listened long enough to know you Walk a road that good intentions pay Will you sing one as they lay me under? Sing a sad farewell to my remains. Sing it just as loud as rolling thunder. And I will rest forever neath the plains. She said it didn't turn out like I'd planned it All my life the traffic's never slow I heard a voice to help me understand it One moment on the shoulder When I was starting out this uh, public journal, I really wanted to write about homesickness. That's really where I was at the time, and I still am in a lot of ways. Originally, the story was born out of a news article that I'd read several weeks ago about some people that were vandalizing cars that had out-of-province or out-of-country plates. And there's currently an Atlantic bubble restriction placed on New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island, preventing people from traveling from outside these areas. And it's uh, in the interest of protecting, protecting people, really. Uh, now, what's ironic is these restrictions are in place to protect people, yet once they're there, some people take it upon themselves to take matters into their own hands. So it began as a response to that situation. But as I reflected more and more, I realized that uh, I had a lot more feelings when it came to being homesick. So this piece is called, You Can't Go Home. What is the cure for homesickness? Well, as the name might suggest, the cure is going home. It's not exactly rocket science. It's in the name, after all. If only other modern ailments were that convenient. Historically, combating the feelings of missing home have been fairly remediable. This past year, that all changed. COVID-19 burst onto the scene. While many brilliant scientists are still hard at work experimenting, a vaccine for the virus has not yet been discovered. 
Unfortunately, it's not as simple as homesickness, an ailment whose discoverer had the forethought of including the cure in its name. God help the beer industry if the same can be said for coronavirus. How does the very real, very threatening how does the very real, very threatening COVID-19 virus measure up against homesickness? Well, it doesn't. When comparing the validity of two ailments, one can look as far as any medical journal to understand that one is a potentially fatal virus, the other is born only out of feeling. Unfortunately, even when measured against other far more factual ailments, that doesn't make said feeling any less painful. I won't be the person who cures coronavirus, but I hope I can be the one to cure homesickness, at the very least for myself. I'm originally from Cardigan, Prince Edward Island, and I've been away on again, off again for about six years. When I leave, my heart aches for the comfort of the red sand, the soul pines for the brackly waves, and the gut grumbles for Richard's lobster rolls. Every time I leave, I always have a sense of when I'll be back. As the plane leaves the Charlottetown airport, I itemize and prioritize the things I want to do as soon as I return. One, hug my family at the airport. Two, take a sentimental drive around with the family before reaching home. Three, have dinner at a locally owned restaurant. Four, catch up with friends over a drink at a pub. Five, go to bed and rest without thinking of when I have to leave again. In reality, the execution of said list looks a lot more like this. One, text my friend where they parked at the airport. Two, wait for said friend to get to the airport after they were, quote, stuck in traffic. Three, get dinner at the McEsso near Stratford. Four, realize that I am out of shape and feel exhausted, possibly from the McDonald's. Boy, it's late, isn't it? Is it, uh, what time is it? 8 p.m. Huh. Five, go to bed and rest without thinking of when I have to leave again. This historically has been my remedy for combating homesickness. And now the question has changed. What is the cure for homesickness when you cannot go home? The answer, you accept the fact that you can't go home because it's better to be homesick than to not have a home to be sick for. How's that for a tough pill to swallow? It's like Buckley's. It tastes awful and it works. Why can't I go home? Current travel restrictions only permit those residing within Atlantic Canada to travel to and from PEI. That means those foolish enough to have aspirations to work in the arts away from home and not thinking ahead to buy a summer home in Stanhope are left outside of the bubble. In short, I can't go home. And if I want a decent night's rest, that's a fact I have to accept. Don't get me wrong, I've tried many, many other remedies. I tried being jealous of those who can go home. This led to me being angry, resentful, and frustrated at them for getting to go to my home when I can't. But the more jealous or resentful I feel, the more I miss home. And then I'm back to where I started. I hold no ill will to those who can go where I cannot. I've also tried deluding myself that maybe someday, somehow, all of this will just go away and things will go back to normal and I can stop hearing about all this new normal stuff that I keep hearing about on the news. But once again, the more energy I invest into chasing thoughts about what may or may not come for a very long time, the more it exhausts the heart. Finally, 
I tried sitting down, slowing down, letting my heart break one piece at a time. This generally is the last step because hearts don't like to be broken and they will protect themselves at all costs. In that moment, it's not until you can look at the fragments of your broken self and see the pieces of who you are. Part of seeing who you are is discovering what truly matters to you. I learned about homesickness. I learned that my homesickness isn't because of the island itself. As much as I want to fantasize about the dirt, the waves, or the delicious sea bug sandwiches, the true heart behind home lives in the people. Right now, what matters most is the health and well-being of the people. If that means not being there for a little while, so be it. It's time to face the truth. The truth is I'm afraid. I'm afraid that my mom might get sick from burning herself out going to work every day, supporting senior citizens in need. I'm afraid that she spends most of her waking hours putting others' needs before her own and was already caught in the recent virus scare. I am afraid because even after the moment she was told she was virus-free, she will get back on the horse and ride back to the place that nearly knocked her down. I'm afraid for my friends who lost their jobs this summer and are feeling the grind of hard times. I'm afraid because PEI isn't exactly crawling with job prospects, especially for those in the arts. I'm afraid because the hard times attack more than just the bank account. They aim directly at the heart. I'm afraid for their hearts breaking too. I'm afraid of the citizens who live in fear of the specter of the virus and key cars and threaten those without a province plates. I'm afraid that if they are worried, they will lose sight of the proper steps to seek safety for themselves and those around them by taking matters into their own hands. I'm afraid of the hands that write, get the f back to the mainland on a note and leave it on a car. I'm afraid that people think they can engage in fisticuffs and still abide social distancing regulations. I'm afraid for the 100,000 worried hearts that are adjusting to the population increasing as travel restrictions loosen. I will say it again. I'm afraid of those who key Dodge caravans with Nova Scotian plates. Seriously, no need for that. If they own a Dodge caravan, they have enough troubles. Admitting that I'm afraid has been the toughest pill to swallow, but it's quite possibly the only thing that will see me through these feelings of missing my home when I know I can't be there. This is not a medical journal. Hell, this is barely even a journal. If there's anything to glean from this admission, it's that acknowledging hurt is the first step towards healing. In times where the spotlight is on identifying the virus, matters of the heart still matter as well. As much as I don't want to feel homesick, I am grateful to have a home to be sick for. I'll see you again soon. Until then, my heart is with you. Every last piece. I heard a voice to help me understand it. One moment on the shoulder of the road. Once again, that was You Can't Go Home. And that was originally published on July the 9th. And that was in response to 
the Atlantic bubble regulations being put into place for the Atlantic provinces in Canada, including Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. Some adjustments have been made, obviously, to some travel restrictions since then, but this really spoke to where I was at at the time. Thank you for everyone who listened to this, uh, this broadcast once again. Once again, my name is Justin Shaw. This has been Island Boy on Anchor FM. Thank you to Eddie Quinn and Fiddler Sons for sharing their music with this broadcast. Take care.